0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five. five four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts
1: report
0: it feels good. Hello again. Hope you're staying safe and well. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and you are listening to episode 195 of the Space Nuts. Podcast, and with me as always is astronomer in charge, And astronomer at large. I've gone back to the egg, astronomer at large, <laughs> Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred.
1: Hello, Andrew. Yes, still at large. Uh, well, actually, not quite at large. I'm shut up at home, but that's that's all right. I'm at large within my house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk
0: about that later because you um, actually got a question. Uh, yep. about your situation, so we will, uh, we'll tackle that in our questions segment. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, the possibility of a naked eye comet in our skies uh, in a month or two. Uh, this is um, one that was discovered fairly recently. Uh, one wonders if it will revo- uh, rival that great uh, comet of 2007, Comet McNaught, which I saw... Um it was, it was actually at its brightest around Australia Day and I was at an Australia Day event. And that evening we all went outside and just looked in awe at this thing. It was amazing. So uh, I'm hoping it'll be... Uh something like that. Uh, and uh, I love this story. I so love this story. You know, In this uh, age of such modern technology and, and uh, complexity, the InSight lander on Mars, remember we talked about that and and the, um, the, the drill got stuck and they couldn't figure out how to fix it? Well, it's fixed. And the way they fixed it, Awesome. <laughs> we'll talk about that soon. Uh, and questions from uh, Josh about the oscillating universe theory. And Paddy wants to know how to take photos through his telescope, uh, which, um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's good to be able to look at these amazing things in the universe, but um, even better if you can record them and maybe frame the picture and put it on your wall or something. Um, actually, uh, Mr. McNaught was very good at that. Um We'll, uh, we'll talk about all those things today. Uh, but first, Fred, a naked eye comet. We, we, um, I, I remember in 1986, I think it was, that uh, I, I was uh, very excited to be able to go outside and, and, and have a look at the um, Halley's Comet. And what a huge disappointment that turned out to be. Uh, it was just a fuzzy ball that you had to squint to see. Uh, yeah, I think uh, people had waited all those years, seven-plus decades, uh, to be um, able to see it, and they went, oh, well, okay. Maybe well, next time. Well, you see, if
1: you'd, if you'd read your astronomy books from 1910, when it when it – had its last apparition, you would have known that it was going to be a fizzer in 1986.
0: Yeah, but you know how <laughs> things go. People, um, you know, <laughs> the stories I heard as a kid was, oh, it just flashed across the sky in seconds, yeah, a big exactly. ro- fiery ball, which was absolute yeah. garbage.
1: Well, and uh, in fact, the thing about Comet halley it, it caused a sensation in 1910. Um, and I, if I remember rightly, that was the year that the comet um, actually passed... Or the Earth passed through the tail of the comet, and uh, uh, because people knew uh, by then that there are some quite complex molecules in in the tails of comets, including cyanide compounds, um, there was terror uh, that we were going to the Earth was going to pass through this comet's tail, which was laced with cyanide, and uh, we'd and, all die. And, and it was officially called COVID one. Yes, something like that. Um, Of course, none of that happened. It was perfectly harmless. But uh, even back then, everybody knew, certainly in the astronomical world, knew that the next apparition in 1986 would be not really worth writing home about because when the comet was at its brightest, it was actually on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth. And so, you know, it's just a very bad uh, geometry for seeing uh, bright comets which leads us to the, t- the current tale of uh, what m- what is being called Comet Atlas uh, and um, has some sort of promise uh, of becoming bright. Although I have to say, you mentioned earlier Comet McNaught, which was discovered by Rob McNaught at Siding Spring Observatory in uh, late 2006 and early in 2007 was utterly spectacular. Uh, it wasn't was- it? Yeah, it was phenomenal. Sadly, only from the Southern Hemisphere.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, we didn't have digital technology like we do now, so nobody had mobile phones and digital cameras in their pockets, so no, not, ma- not right. many private photos. Today, though, yeah. could be a different prospect.
1: That's that's right. And certainly, I mean, a lot of the best photos were actually taken by Rob McNaught himself. But yeah. it was uh, night after night, it hanging in the western sky with this structure in its tail that was really Quite extraordinary. Mm. So um, coming back to the present time, we need to preface this discussion by the caveat that applies to all comets. I can't remember who said this, but it was a long time ago. Uh, And it's very appropriate because Mandu is wandering around somewhere at the moment. Uh, The quote (laughs) is, uh, comets are just like cats; they have tails and they do anything they like. <laughs> so, um, cause, so you never really know with a comet. Um, the let, let's look at the physics. You, what you've got is a, a basically a, 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 a like an iceberg. Always oh, come back to my, yeah, exactly. A man yes. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned my name. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the. The, the, the comet is is like an iceberg, basically a mountain-sized or maybe a mountain range-sized lump of fairly loosely packed ice with lots of dust in it. Uh, uh, sometimes I think Halley is it's certainly less than ten kilometers across. Uh, we talked long and uh, in, in great detail a few years ago about um, comet 67P, Mm. Churyumov-Gerasimenko, which was visited by the Rosetta spacecraft. Uh, I think that was about, if I remember rightly, a kilometre and a half. It's quite small. I can't remember. Anyway, they're not big objects. But what makes them visible and what makes them so bright is that when they get near the sun, and remember, they're in very elongated orbits. They come in from way out in the depths of the solar system. Uh, pass by the sun. And when they do that, the sun's radiation essentially vaporizes the the, the, the ices in the comet and you get this plasma tail. And, actually, and in, in doing that, because the ices are being vaporized, it loosens the dust. And so you get a, a separate, often a separate dust tail, mm. which is actually a different color from the plasma tail. A, l- a lot of really interesting images now with, as you said, with modern digital technology, we can see all this. So... Um, as it comes in uh from its uh, you know sojourn way out in the far depths of the solar system uh it, it comets as they get nearer the sun they start uh producing what 's called a coma. The coma is the sort of glow of gas around the uh, around the comet itself around the comet nucleus and uh that is what we 're seeing at the moment with comet atlas uh we can see uh the coma um. Its name is actually an acronym for the, you know, the robotic survey that discovered it. Uh, the acronym ATLAS uh, stands for Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System. So it's a system, a robotic system for looking uh, for near Earth objects, um, particularly asteroids. But of course, anything like an asteroid yeah it does it's not found an asteroid this time but it's a comet but comets uh, like asteroids move relatively quickly through our skies mm. uh, especially if they're near and that's uh, what you know is the is the the, the threat the basically the trigger for uh, things being recorded so it was back in december uh, when atlas was first uh, observed um it Actually, yes, it was the 20th, 28th of December, so right at the end of 2019. And I should give you the technical name. Comet Atlas is actually c 2019 y 4 That's its formal designation. But usually with comets, uh, they take the name of the discoverer, hence Comet McNaught, discovered by Rob McNaught. Um, and since this was discovered by a robot, it gets the robot's name, which is Atlas. So it's uh, it was faint back in in December, But what has alerted people, and the reason really why we're talking about it, is it's actually brightened quite rapidly. Um, And that's, you know, encouraged people to wonder whether we will get um, a spectacular display. Uh, And actually, the the astronomy world is a bit hungry for that sort of thing because (laughs) there's not been much, uh, certainly nothing like McNaught. Uh, Comet Lovejoy back in 2011 was was very bright. Uh, And uh, seven years ago, um there was a comet called Panstars named after another uh, asteroid detection system uh, which was uh, was visible after sun sunset uh, in the western sky but you know these these comets um certainly McNaught was was very spectacular uh, the the other two I've just mentioned Lovejoy and Panstars weren't so much so but they they created a lot of interest because there were Naked eye visible, that's the point. You know, you can see it with the unaided eye. So, and that's so the, the... there's no way of predicting how bright this one
0: might get. Exactly. But the exactly. the hope is that it will be.
1: Exactly. At the moment, it's little more than a hope. Um, I, I think you and I will probably keep an eye on this uh, for the, the podcast. Uh, it gets closest to the sun if I remember rightly, on the 31st of March, sorry, May 31st of May, uh, so it's still got a you know a couple of months to go uh, to brighten up. It's uh, it's still fairly well out in the solar system. Uh, it's it's when comets pass their closest to the sun that they typically get brightest because that's when they go past the sun. All this stuff comes off the comet, the plasma and the and the dust, and that then forms a tail which stretches actually not behind the, t- the comet. The, the tail stretches away from the comet in the direction opposite to the sun. Mm. It's a bit peculiar. Yeah. Uh, it's because the solar radiation is the pressure that's pushing the tail outwards. It's not like a tail streaming behind something, as we'd expect, you know, with a rocket or something like that. It's actually uh, the tail direction is dictated by the direction of the sun. So what it means is that as they leave the solar system, often if they do have a tail, the tail's actually pointing the at, direction that they're the going. Sun. Oh, yeah, 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 that's
0: right, away from the sun. Away um, from the sun. It prompts an interesting question. As it sort of does its turn around the sun, does the comet turn or does the tail just spin around the, the comet? Uh,
1: well, yeah, that, so the, the the comet itself is probably rotating anyway, independently yeah. of all this, and we sometimes see that with uh, very detailed images of the centre of, of comets, the centre of the, the coma, the head of the comet. You can see... Uh, almost like spiral structure in it, as the comet 's rotating and it 's got jets of material coming off it, and they turn into a like a you know a catherine wheel uh, 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 in the firework world you get these spiral jets of material so uh, you 're right though that uh, the tail itself turns away from the sun, but that is what gives the tail its curvature because um, you know the the particles or the, the the gas in the tail is heading off in a particular direction the source of that material changes direction and so what you get is a curve a curve in the tail and a comet mcnaught um, had this extraordinary curvature i remember it arching over the western mm. horizon it was oh, really astonishing
0: it was amazing i real, i still remember it so vividly yeah. uh, and it was just such a thrill and, and like you'd go out at night and you'd just glance up and there it was it was just it was so <laughs> it, it just dominated the skyline for, for a, yeah. a, a so, good
1: while too yeah, it did. That's right. Now, now you and I are now sounding like a couple of old men reminiscing about <laughs> the great things of the past. Yes. Uh, which is not the um, well, not necessarily the, <laughs> the the purpose of this um, this segment. But uh, just to mention that at the at uh, the comet's closest, it will be about thirty eight million kilometers. That's kind of twenty three or so million miles uh, from the sun. And uh we expect from that uh, you know, a big increase in its in its luminosity. So it will uh it will brighten up. There's oh, so it seems about, almost certain that it's gonna brighten up. Oh good. About um, half an AU. Uh well, no, an AU is fifty million. There's a very naughty oh, so cat here that's I, eating. I, the, I can hear something going yeah, on. It's actually, yeah. All right. I'm just Prodding him to make him behave slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's eating the furniture, oh, and scratching it. You know, yeah. like they do. Mm. He's got a soft spot for the lounge. In this, All right. So, the, the, sorry about that a the, slight digression. The there. possibility
0: of this becoming decently bright is is not confirmed, but hopeful.
1: It is. I mean, it, it, you know, I suppose if we've got something that looks good in binoculars, then you've got something. Uh, worth talking about, if it gets to naked eye brightness, so you, all you've got to do is look up uh, in the right direction and see this fuzzy patch, then it's, it's getting to be a big story. And if it develops a tail stretching halfway across the sky, like one of the uh, comets, uh, I, think, I can't remember, was that Kohutek or Hayak- Hayakutake, I think it was called, um, and that had a tail that was really very dramatically long. Mm. Uh, if it does that, then we're, you know, if it paid out. Yeah. So um, the message at the moment is keep an eye on it, and um, we will try and bring the news to you as it arrives. Indeed, um, and and you you mentioned it
0: earlier on in 1910. Um, you know, they, uh, the arrival of uh, Halley's comet, um, the world sort of panicked at the possibilities of uh, disease and pestilence,
1: and of course, when was when was uh, this latest one? found fred yes that's right isn't that extraordinary i was just i thought the same thing when we were when we were having that conversation that um, you know uh, 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 over um, over thousands of years of human history comics have always been regarded as portents of doom mm. as as bad omens um it and it's a bit strange because it's not obvious i, I suppose uh, it could it could be terrifying if you had a bright object in the sky that, you know, seemed to be have a tail and heading towards you or something. That might um, actually impart panic. Uh, just as an aside here, though, Andrew, um, two former colleagues of mine, uh, Bill Napier and Victor Klub, in fact, I used to work for Victor at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, uh, they they were among the first to recognize that the earth has been bombarded by asteroids and probably comets too and they uh, did a lot of research on comet enke which is a comet that may have had fragments that have impacted the earth and they linked that the fact that there were real horrors happening on earth because of impacts from comet fragments uh, to the uh, you know the tradition that comets are, are bringers of of bad news, uh, so that um, there the, the might be a physical history. Why uh, we've always regarded comets as bad omens, but yes, it is remarkable that. In the COVID-19 era, we have a comet uh, that is going to grace our skies, I hope. Um, we, we don't see it as a bad news story. No, It, it no, keeps no. eye in business for a start. It's just
0: a <laughs> sheer coincidence that the illness is COVID-19 and the comet is C2019. <laughs> just a coincidence. Mm. Yes, that's All right. right. <laughs> uh, but we will keep an eye on that. There'll be more to tell real soon. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, I'd like to recognise our patrons for signing up and putting a few dollars a month into the kitty to keep our podcast alive. Uh, you are wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, we, we're obviously aiming to uh, to sign up more patrons, but it's not mandatory. We, but we do uh, we do particularly want to recognise those who uh, who are enjoying the podcast enough to want to volunteer some some money in the bank. So uh, thank you for that. If you're interested in doing that patreon.com slash space nuts is the site patreon.com slash space nuts and uh, yeah it's just fantastic that you um, you feel that strongly about the podcast that you uh, you want to contribute financially and uh, we we say it so many times but we re-
1: really uh, do appreciate you very very much uh, don't we Fred uh, absolutely no it's uh, yeah it's fantastic to to have people who are
0: prepared to do that. Mm. Now, um, maybe NASA should have thought of signing up some patrons to fix <laughs> the InSight lander because it's had to figure out how to fix itself. Now, a, a little while back, you and I talked about the uh, the fact that it was trying to do a drilling operation and the drill got stuck and they didn't have a solution. Well, they came up with one. It's... Um, it's as, it's as classy as a plumber unblocking a pipe, in my opinion. This is this is awesome. It,
1: absolutely. Um, so the story is uh, NASA's InSight rover on Mars. It landed on the uh, – sorry, it did land on the planet, yes, in uh, November uh, 2018. So it's been there rather more than a year. Uh, and you remember that what InSight is all about is uh, – Two big main instruments, a a seismometer to listen to Mars quakes, and we've actually talked about the successful uh, detection of Mars quakes on the planet, um, which is is all, um, you know, giving us us insights, of course, which is why it's called that, uh, into the interior structure of Mars. But the other big experiment was the thermometer. To lower a thermometer, um, I think it goes down... Um, about four meters, something like that. That's the idea, into the Martian soil. Uh, this is basically uh, a, a, a drill that's got all the delicate equipment inside it. It's technically called a digging probe. Uh, and if you think of something about, I don't know, 35 centimeters long, 15 inches or, or thereabouts, Uh it's it, uh th- that sort of length but maybe a, an inch or so in diameter twenty five millimeters um th- it's probably got a spike on one end and uh, basically it's very cleverly designed so that it uh it sort of vibrates its way down into the soil um the idea was that uh, you you would um, give it, you, you can give it an individual number of strokes um, to uh i think there's a weight inside it i think that's how it works uh that kind of a, a bit like the old pneumatic drills that people used to use to dig up roadways where there's a, a, a basically a hammer inside it that hits the top of a, uh that hits the top of the of the drill bit the, the sharp bit on the end mm. and it's the impact that actually gives the you know the impetus to to make a hole in whatever it is so it's a very similar like a pile uh, idea. Driver that yes only a, perhaps a slightly gentler process because you're, you're to, you know you're talking about putting delicate instruments down mm. so the the story is uh which we've rehearsed many times it actually got stuck uh, not very far down into it and in fact i think we mentioned too that probably a couple of months ago um it actually bounced out again and you know uh, they were worried that they weren't going to be able to get it back in the hole because the the probe sort of Popped out and tipped over slightly. Um, so <clears throat> the, the the problem was always that you don't really know what has made it stop, why it's stuck. Is there a big slab of rock uh, blocking the the way down, or is there uh, is it a problem of the uh, the, the the mole itself, which is the technical term for this probe, uh, not being able to grip the soil um, uh, around the edge in order to give it some leverage, uh, which is another you know a fairly viable possibility because Martian soil is not like soil on the Earth. Um, anyway, the problem has been for long that it wasn't actually working at all, and people did talk slightly. I think slightly jokingly about giving it a clout with the with the sh- the hammer. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shovel, a shovel, really. Um, uh, Insight, um, like its predecessor, uh, Phoenix, which is a very similar design, uh, Insight has a robotic arm, uh, and on the end of it, there's this scoop. It really is, but it, it looks a bit like a, a, a tiny little backhoe shovel. Mm. The, so people talked about that, but they're very worried about doing that because out of the top of the the mole itself, the probe comes all the wiring that connects it to you know to the to the rover. Yeah, you that, can sorry, you can see that
0: quite clearly in the photograph that they've um, yeah know, that's they've right taken.
1: There's a, there's a, there's a There is a, a nice NASA picture showing. Exactly that. You can see the probe. You can see the wiring coming out of it. And in this particular photograph, you can also see the backhoe shovel, which apparently has been used to give it a good, um, you know, a good slug. A good Um, old-fashioned thump. A thump, yes, that's right, Mm. Uh, which um, seems to have done the trick.
0: Uh, I think it's it's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) How do we we fix this thing? Let's hit it with a spade. Done. I That's can imagine right. that I can imagine them sitting in mission Control and you know you get the whole thing lined up and of course it wouldn't happen in real time because of the time it takes for signals to get there so you're watching this in past tense really uh, so you get it positioned it would have taken ages I suppose and then you push the button to make the thump or whatever it is they do <laughs> and then and you sit there and go Oh, I hit it too hard, and you got to wait twenty <laughs> minutes to see what happens.
1: Well, that's right. Yes, and see what it does. Um, I think actually um, we're we perhaps um, having a little bit of oh, yeah, uh, right? artistic license here Plus because that. I think what they what they actually did was use the the uh, this backhoe shovel to push down on the top of it, um, just a, applying pressure. Um, and, and I think you know to try and get it. Doing yeah. its thing. And, and, and then it get traction. it doing its thing. Mm. So there's a, some words here from, I don't think they're a direct quote from a JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory spokesperson. But um, the, the text here, which actually comes from popular science, while pressing down with the arm, the operators instructed the mole to dig for 25 strokes. Uh, that's enough to make it sink down a couple of inches under ideal conditions. 50 millimeters, of course, for those of us here in the in the metric world, uh, early images suggest that the mole has dug perhaps half an inch. It's about 13 millimetres, although mission planners are anxiously waiting more data before they declare the instrument saved. So the signs are good, mm. but um, the, uh, the you know, the, 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 the thing's not home and dry yet, if I can put it that way. Um, there is there's some very nice quotes from uh, one of the mission scientists, um, mm. Uh, who's in, uh, involved with this work whose name i'm trying to find uh it's uh yeah, yeah i'm sorry i can't um, i can't i can't find this person's name but uh there is the, the, the they referred to this as plan c uh, the, the idea of using the shovel uh, but um the the, the there's nasa or jpl spokesperson uh Talks about this as being their gardening skills, which are quite like, uh, because the you know the the idea is to uh, to allow the uh, the mole to, to 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 go all the way down. They've got to do things like covering up the hole that that it's in. Uh, there's a few really interesting aspects of it. Um, if if they don't get the mole down significantly further. Uh, The conclusion will be that there is a rock or a stone down there blocking it. But uh, the the signs at the moment are are promising, and I think it's no more than that.
0: I I like the other solution that uh, someone suggested uh, in terms of finding a, a, a way of dealing with this. Let's ask Mark Watney. Mark, Mark Watney was the character in the um, in the book The Martian who got stuck on Mars, all right. <laughs> and yes. had to solve all these problems to survive. So yeah, I think there's the solution. Ask Mark Watney.
1: Yeah, he'll <laughs> figure in, it out. Instead, instead we've we've asked Tillman Spawn, who is the principal investigator. Of it, <laughs> so that's the person who was making those quotes. Yes, and that's a good quote. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. All right. Well,
0: hopefully there'll be some positive news to share about uh, the InSight Lander and uh, its uh, its robotic drill. You're listening to Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson.
1: OK, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts.
0: Now, if you have not started following us on Facebook yet, uh, now is the time because nothing special will happen if you do. But it's a nice thing to do because you'll be able to keep up to date with not only episodes of Space Nuts but other bits and bobs that we put on the uh, Facebook page. That's the Space Nuts Facebook page. Or you co- uh, could join, or you could join as well, the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. And that's where Space Nuts listeners join each other and converse and swap stories and ideas. And uh, sometimes people will ask questions and everybody will chime in with their uh, with their answers. It's, uh, it's a fun group. It's growing day by day and it's a real thrill to have been um, partially responsible for putting you all together because uh, I, can, I can see um, much joy being had uh, between the members of the Space Nuts podcast group. So they're on Facebook. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter, I think, I don't know. uh, I I meant to say YouTube. I don't know why Twitter popped into my head. Um, But, uh, yeah, uh, YouTube um, is where we've got a lot of uh, followers now, well well over 1,000, and the the numbers are growing. So uh, if you'd like to subscribe via YouTube, you can do that as well. Now, Fred, uh, we've got some questions, but before we get to audience questions, um, somebody posed a question from the um, astronomical world to you in regard to COVID-19. Well, you're holed up at home because you're an old fart
1: and you're not allowed outside. (laughs) Yes, well, well, uh, that's um, uh, probably a fairly accurate description, actually. (laughs) Many people would agree with it. Yes. Um, so no visiting uh, uh, Fred at it's home. True.
0: Very important. Do not go to Fred's place.
1: <laughs> I think that I think Fart must be an acronym there. I'm trying to work out what it. I'll, I'll what, make one up Fred, while we're talking. Uh, wait a minute, no, um, Fred, Fred at residence um, today. There you are. Oh, that's good the acronym. one.
0: That's Fred at residence. Yeah, I don't it, think I can do better than that.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so I am at home. I'm working from home. Um, uh, It's not. uh, It's actually a personal choice, really, because the you know we're being advised by uh, our state government uh, if we uh, can stay at home, we should do, and I can. Um, I can I can equally go into the office, but um, there's, (laughs) there's there's not really any need to do that at the moment. I can do pretty well everything I need from home. So yeah, I was asked by. No less a person than, uh, I think, the editor, actually, of the BBC Sky at Night magazine in the UK, uh, uh, which is um, both, I think, a a printed and an an online publication. Uh, A spin-off from the BBC Sky at Night programme, which, uh, of course, has been going since 1957 and still is. I used to be on it in the days when Patrick Moore was was, uh, covering it if I went back to the UK. Anyway, so it's something very close to my heart because... Mm. Sky at Night is what turned a lot of us of my generation onto astronomy in the first place, back in the 50s and 60s. So I'm always happy to, um, you know, help The Sky at Night magazine. So the question was, um, and I think this went to a lot of astronomers all around the world, excuse me, how is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting your work? How is it affecting the work of astronomy, astronomers and space scientists? Well, we know because we've seen in the media that some, some space science is continuing unabated. We've had uh, more launches of the, uh, the, the, the OneWeb and uh, Starlink constellations, but some has stopped, like work on the James Webb Space Telescope. That's currently being postponed. Uh, the world of astronomy is, is probably a little bit better off than many activities because astronomers generally, certainly here in Australia we're very used to communicating online simply because we're so far away from most other places. So it's it's very much uh, a way of life uh, to communicate by Skype or Zoom or other, you know, online facilities. Um, And a really good example of that is that uh, remote observing on our telescopes both in Australia and overseas uh, is standard practice essentially, um, because it it saves travel. We, uh, in fact, there's a there is an, an interesting link here between another, <clears throat> excuse me, another calamity that overtook certainly siding Spring Observatory back in 2013, the Wombalong bushfire. I remember uh, it vividly
0: because it also would, threatened the transmitter of the radio network. I yes, was that's right. For at the the
1: um, Mount St Croix was that's right in the Warambungal Range, which is the radio transmitter there uh, on a mountain not very far from Siding Spring Mountain where the telescopes are, and that was a huge bushfire, 54,000 mm-hmm. hectares. Um, it uh, swept over the observatory thanks probably largely to the Rural Fire Service doing their water bombing from the air. None of the telescopes were destroyed. The The lodge, the old Siding Spring Lodge, was burned down. Uh, but So what that meant was that um, it, because of that uh, bushfire, <clears throat> something that had been in the wings for a while, was brought forward, and that was remote observing on the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Uh, and very quickly, it became a standard operation because the you know the uh, network links were good enough. Uh, astronomers actually suddenly realized that they could make their observations from their home city if it was uh, it was only sydney at the, the time to start with but now we've got nodes all over the country that allow astronomers to work uh, from their almost their office sometimes from home as well so and th- that that's for the domestic facilities Likewise, with the radio telescopes, uh, it's very much the case with overseas facilities, too. Uh, It's also for us in Australia very commonplace that we attend meetings uh, over the Internet, simply because they're often in Europe or North America or wherever. And um, many astronomers in this country, in Australia, belong to... Very large international collaborations um, like the RAVE, uh, you know, the RAVE collaboration that I've been closely involved with, and another one called Galar. So it's very much a stock in trade. And I think it's true to say that many Australian astronomers now are like me, just working from home. Um, The telescopes, uh, certainly the last time I checked. Our national facilities here in Australia, the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Siding Spring, the 3.9-metre reflector, and the various radio telescopes, I think they're still operating uh, with minimal staff <clears throat> and no no visiting observers. Uh, but one thing that has changed, and this is outside our control, the <clears> – <throat> excuse me, Andrew, I've got a frog in my throat, just clear. <clears> throat> Probably well, I, I that hope tea. that's all it is. Yes, I do too. <laughs> COVID-19 getting its own back. Um, the uh, European Southern Observatory Telescopes at Serra um, Paranal and La Silla, which uh, we in Australia now have access to because of the uh, 10-year strategic partnership which was signed back in 2017, uh, that is a very important pillar of Australian uh, observational astronomy, certainly at optical wavelengths. But uh, those facilities have actually suspended their science operations, uh, and it's all about protecting staff. Uh, So there aren't going to be any, I think that's already come into practice. If not, it's going to happen very soon, that there won't be any more scientific operations taking place there. So people who've got time awarded on those telescopes, Um, we don't know quite what the situation will be, whether they will lose that time permanently and have to reapply or whether there will be some sort of compensation. My guess is that they will have to reapply because that's what happens if you get bad weather. You just lose your time uh, and you've got to start again. So that's uh, perhaps one of the biggest uh, effects of the coronavirus. We, um, you know, our thoughts are, of course, always with, people who are more directly affected thousands of tens of thousands of people uh, stand to lose their jobs and have lost their jobs in australia as with many other countries Uh, at least so far so good that um uh, astronomers, often astronomers are on fairly short-term contracts so there might be long-term consequences of the virus, particularly with universities that rely for a lot of their income on overseas students um, because that has dried up as well. Yes, so,
0: we've seen that even in Dubbo where we, yes. have, we have a university campus and students are not going in so it, it, it's, it, it's getting down into the real depths of society and um, uh, causing all sorts of mayhem, but um, yeah, uh, no end in sight at this point in time. Which is well, uh,
1: yeah, we big... will get through it. Oh, um, for sure. But there's no doubt about that. But yeah. it is—it's a very, you know, it's comparable with. I kind of think of it as World War Three, actually, because it's going to have that sort of effect on people. Yes, indeed. Mm. All right. Uh, Let's um, answer a couple of
0: questions from the audience. This question comes from Josh Vince. As I understand in uh, the theory of oscillating universe theory, uh, it would state that our universe is existing between a bang and a crunch, which could be the first or the nth. Oh, the ends, yeah. and ends. Uh, I have read that the cosmic wave, uh, background wave radiation data shows that we are in fact just expanding until a heat death. What would legitimise the oscillating theory? What creates this theorised crunch? Could it be from the supposed nature of dark energy where it is both repulsive and attractive, Just like us, Fred. Uh, If so, how would it start to become attractive? How would it start to become attractive through the pull of the universe uh, back into one dense spot? I'm clearly not a cosmologist, but this theory and the nature of dark energy really blows my mind. Apologies if this is a nonsensical inquiry. Thanks, Josh. It's a non -non nonsensical inquiry, I, I venture to say.
1: Absolutely. It's a great question. And Josh, we apologise that it's taken us uh, till now to get to your question, because you posed this back in July last year. So I hope you're still listening. Um, but if not, <clears throat> this might be of interest to other people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the uh, Yes, it, it, it was particularly during the 1970s, we were in the world of astronomy convinced that, or the expectation was that while we could measure the current expansion of the universe, uh, if you could look further back in time in the universe, we expected that we'd find a universe that was expanding more rapidly because the expectation was simply that the universe's expansion would slow down. We knew that it had been expanding for, you know, 13 or 14 billion years. The best guess we have at the moment is 13.8 billion years. Uh, So that expansion is well Charted. But what was a big question at that time in the 70s and 80s <clears throat> is how is that varying over time? Uh, is it slowing down as we would expect? Why would it, we expect it to slow down? Because the universe is full of stuff and that stuff all has gravitational potential. So we would have expected the galaxies and all the rest of the stuff in the universe to act as a brake on the expansion and slow it down. And in fact, as exactly as Josh mentions, one of the theories that was quite popular in the 70s was the idea that the expansion or the, the breaking effect of gravity might actually be strong enough to overcome the expansion and eventually turn the expansion into a contraction mm. and give us what was usually called the big crunch. <clears throat> One person didn't call it that. That was Brian Schmidt, uh, now vice chancellor of the Australian National University, who always called it the, the Gnab Gib which is big bang, big bang back back. backwards yeah <laughs> which That's i was a, thought was still makes talk. me giggle huh? i love it yeah it's a it's a great great notion uh, more more often called the big crunch <clears throat> but um it was actually Brian uh, himself, of course, and and uh, other competitors, actually, uh, although they all arrived at the same answer in the United States, who, back in 1998, realized that actually the expansion is increasing. Uh, and that's, uh, as Josh correctly uh, mentions, that's due to something we now call dark energy, an energy of space itself, which means that the more space you have, the more energy it has, and the more rapid Uh, the expansion becomes. So it's the accelerating expansion of the universe. So unless something changes, unless that is a temporary phenomenon, and we don't really have any way of of telling that, we're just basically taking the assumption that uh, what we see now is what is going to continue happening, uh, then yes, exactly as Josh says, the the universe ends up with a heat death. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very old term, actually. It goes back to the 1950s, Uh, The idea of the heat death of the universe that basically you just run out of star fuel, stars stop shining, and you've just got a lot of cold objects that basically have nothing. You know, there's essentially the the, not heating the universe up at all. The universe becomes a cold, dark and miserable place, terribly boring. Uh, uh, Heat death sounds better than the boredom death of the universe. But that's basically what it is. So. Um, Josh's question really is what would bring back the oscillating theory? Uh, it would take something pretty spectacular, but he might be on the right lines. If you could show that dark energy was a temporary phenomenon or one that might somehow reverse, then that might bring back the oscillating theory. At the moment, we are we have no idea what dark energy is. Um, we assume that what we see now, what we see is what we get, uh, that dark energy you know to the best of our knowledge as space increases dark energy increases uh, and that tends to rule out any thoughts of an oscillating universe so um it looks as though that theory has hit the had its death knell uh, with the um, the accelerating expansion uh, but you know it's still uh, it's still an open question in, at some level because of our really lack of understanding of exactly what dark energy is, yeah. uh- All we can do is look at the way it behaves, and the way it behaves seems to be that it gets bigger as space gets bigger. Okay. Thank you,
0: Josh. Great question. Uh, Let's move on. This one comes from Paddy. I'm a roof plumber by trade and drive around Sydney quoting jobs, and your podcast is my new radio. Isn't that nice? Thank you, uh, Paddy. My question is, what type of digital imager should I purchase for my new telescope that I was inspired to buy from listening to your podcast? Wow. Um, The telescope is a Skywatcher Dobsonian's 150mm-1200mm. Through the eyepiece, I can see Jupiter and its four moons, but would like to be able to take some pictures to record the experience. Yeah, who wouldn't? Uh, Where can I take the telescope in New South Wales where there is uh, no or minimal uh, light pollution? I think he's getting at there. Uh, Look at the moment, uh, Paddy, nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> um have a wonderful day may the force be with you <laughs> uh etc um okay yeah good question i mean uh we've got the technology these days to take these uh spectacular photos of just about anything uh, my little pocket camera which cost me next to nothing's got 40 times optical zoom so i, I during the um, bushfire crisis recently and then the dust storms i took some Incredibly spectacular sunset and sunrise photos through the through the haze, and big pink you know billiard ball sunrises, I, and and I did it all with a pocket camera, so um, I, I suspect that
1: uh, he might only need one of those. <laughs> so you're telling him he doesn't need his his Skywatcher Dobsonian, which well, um,
0: well I he, t- he, he probably needs that to get the close up image that he can then photograph. Yeah. It's look, it's a nice
1: telescope that uh that Paddy's got. Paddy McMorna's, his name is, and sadly, once again, um, I hope Paddy's still listening because uh, this came in about three months ago, I think, or four months ago. Um, so thank you very much for your question, Paddy. It's a great question. Let me uh, just uh, uh highlight something for your benefit, uh, Andrew. Yep, uh, because he says, hey, Where can he ta- take the telescope, whether it's no or minimum minimal Allen? Mm. And, Alan, you correctly interpreted it as light pollution, but Alan is a real acronym. It means uh, artificial light at night. Ah, uh, and so I, I knew
0: it, it was something like that, but I just couldn't get my head around
1: it. Yeah, that's right. No, it's just, you know, it's a good thing to bear in mind because occasionally we see references to Alan and you think, oh, who's he? I don't know, Alan, but it's artificial light at night. Um, so... Um, I mean, Paddy might have already gone and bought a camera, and if he has, I hope it's doing well. A Dobsonian is... um, So this is a telescope that was invented by John Dobson. It's actually what's called a Newtonian telescope. It uses Newton's idea of a mirror, uh, a big dish mirror at the bottom, and a, a tilted flat mirror to bring the light out to an eyepiece at the side. It's a very common uh, type of telescope, the Dobsonian bit is that John Dobson, um, who sadly is no longer with us, he basically invented the idea of a really crude telescope just made out of a, uh, a almost a, a wooden box uh, for the mounting uh, that you can actually... Basically, just point the telescope in any direction in a in a very straightforward and simple way without any knobs and or you know knobs and bells and whistles and things of that sort. Yeah, um, and it it works well. It's it's good for looking at the planets, for looking at stars. What it doesn't do is track on the sky. You can actually buy attachments that will let you do that, but then you're in a slightly different regime. So you're not going to be able to use it for taking. Uh, long images of nebulae and things like that, which is which needs a, a more com- you know a more complex mechanism for tracking on the sky. But uh, this is a six-inch telescope, a one-fifty millimeter. It's a, a you know a decent-sized telescope. Uh, I would have given my eye teeth for one of those when I was a youngster getting interested in astronomy. So it's well worth having, and you'll get as as Paddy says, you'll get great views of of uh, the planets jupiter and its moons saturn's rings and for that you can you can almost use your iphone pointed at the eyepiece or sorry you your go. smartphone uh, or your you know your your pocket camera um, because you're you, you only need a short exposure you can you know do an exposure in i don't know 20th of a second or something like that, you're getting enough light from the sky that you will record the image. And if you're doing oh. it at night, Patty, the flash is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> quite so. Uh, that's that's what you need for taking pictures of the people who are standing watching you, except there won't be any because they're all at home because that's of COVID-19. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so you might have to do your selfie with the flash. Yeah. Uh, for more complicated things, um, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, a change of mount, telescope mounting. It's got to be something different from that. Uh, a Dobsonian won't let you do deep sky photography without the additional gizmos. Uh, and then you probably want to buy a rather higher level digital camera. Uh, but um, I hope that's helpful. Um, actually, you know, a, a, a standard single lens digital reflex camera, uh can be adapted to a telescope. Uh, often you can get an adapter. You take the lens out and basically, uh, sorry, take the normal photographic lens off, uh, take the eyepiece lens out and let the telescope itself be your lens. Yeah. Uh, that, again, is slightly fancier, but it's a good way to do it.
0: Mm, yeah, I'd, I'd probably get a different camera so you don't
1: ruin your good one or, you know. Well, what's that? Possibility, too. Yes, if you're going to take a, a shovel to it, as they did with the Insight Lander, then, yes, buy a second-hand one.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Uh, hope that helped, Patty. Thanks for the question. Uh, good discussion, too. Um, yeah, could probably give some other people some ideas as well. Uh, Fred, that's just about it. Um, thank you again, as always. Stay safe.
1: Doing my best, Andrew. Uh, the same to you, too. Make sure you... Keep your, uh, you know, keep, keep your distance from all the people around you.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, look, they've defined radio as a, um, um, uh, a necessary service. So. Yeah, yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> you,
1: you do it for pleasure anyway. Yeah, so. I do, I do. Yeah.
0: Um, but anyway. Uh, oh, and don't forget um, uh, you, you, the Space Nuts shop, bites.com slash Space Nuts, that's B-I-T-E-S-Z. Um, there's all sorts of things there. Fred's new book, my new book. I think, uh, which is available for pre-order, the Tyrannian Enigma and Cosmic Chronicles. Uh, and and uh, Hugh assures me that he's now got the logo sorted out for the new polo shirts, and I think there are caps. And uh, so pop along and have a look. Woo-hoo! Um, because I've got such a great computer, none of the graphics work, so I can't see them damn. I'll try a different computer one day. Uh, but yeah, uh, bytes.com slash space nuts. You'll find the space nuts shop there as well as all our episodes, as well as uh, uh, the little um, um, interface where you can send us questions. You can do that through the, the website as well. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for your input. Thanks for, um, you know, continually supporting space nuts. It is so greatly appreciated. And thank you, Fred. We'll talk to you
1: again next week. I look forward to it very much, Andrew, and uh, stay safe and stay well.
0: Indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll see you next time.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Mm -hmm. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has
1: been another quality podcast production
0: from Bytes.com um